Hey there, it's Marshall Latham here to remind you that this podcast has a Patreon page where you can support the podcast and get early shows and extra stuff. This episode where Rish and I talk about The Skull debuted back in November, I believe early November, on Patreon. And uh, since then, we've recorded another episode where we get the closest we ever have to reviewing a Hallmark holiday special <laughs> a TV movie starring Mark Harmon from the year 2000 called For All Time. We also got together and recorded a little preview of some of the movies that we're going to be talking about this year, uh, but that's only available to Patreon members. So if you'd like to support us, head on over to patreon.com slash journey into. But for now, on with the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Outfield Excursions here on the Journey Into podcast. My name is Marshall Latham, and I am here with Rish Outfield, of course. Yes. Hey, Rish. Let me say hello to you. That sounded really strange, like I was an AI or something that didn't quite have a handle on how you greet someone. <laughs> Allow me to greet you. Friendly. Let me pull up a list of Turing test questions to see if you're a real person or not. Well, you might be confused because of the movie that you watched uh, this week. <laughs> confused as to whether I should continue to be your friend? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I guess I was trying to get you back for uh, King Solomon's Minds. But, uh, today, tonight, whenever you listen to this... We are talking about the skull. Is this sort of our, our October episode, or are we not going to well, make we'll, that? We'll see. <laughs> we'll see if I can pull it together by the end of October. It's uh, just past mid-October as we record this. So um, we will. I will try to expedite the editing of this. But... Yes, this is a 1965 film that was directed by Freddie Francis, uh, who we talked about when we were talking about The Innocence. He was the cinematographer for that movie. And I thought, oh, ah. well, I, I'm kind of excited now to watch The Skull. Yeah, he was the cinematographer for Glory. Uh, I know it was Big Anklevich that loved Glory. I don't know if you loved that movie, too. It was it was um, good. <laughs> but yeah, he, he did. He was director of photography for The Elephant Man, uh, for wow, Dune, yeah. David Lynch's Dune, for the terrifying Return to Oz. <laughs> uh, we should do that the, movie at some point. Oh, geez. As a, as a grown man, see if it still is frightening. Yes. And uh, yeah, I wanted to mention, I knew Freddie Francis because he was a, a hammer horror film director and i was looking at his filmography and besides the skull i found the ghoul the evil of frankenstein dr terror's house of horrors torture garden and do you know what all those movies have in common besides being directed by freddie francis <laughs> uh do they star peter cushing they all star peter cushing well oh, done. that was a good guess <laughs> 
Yeah. I knew I knew he was the Van Helsing of the Hammer movies, but I haven't watched very many of those. So uh, does this movie fit right in line with those, or is this kind of an abstraction from that? Well, this was made by Amicus Productions, which was a competitor to Hammer. Oh, okay. Uh, there in London, and they didn't have the budgets or the uh, this this the prestige, I guess, of Hammer, which had been around <laughs> since the fifties. But they had the same group of actors to to pull from, and the same directors. You know, I guess it was a very small community, uh, and I, I suppose it still is. If you watch a bunch of BBC shows, uh, you'll see the same faces over and over again. Just because it's uh, the the people there work a lot, but there there's not millions and millions of actors to pull from. I like the Hammer horror movies quite a bit. They they tend to have a classiness to them. I uh, even the ones in the seventies when they became much more exploitative still have maybe a, a bit of a highbrow to them, and this did not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I think this was just a sort of a, a, I don't know, an Americanized version of, of a Hammer film. But then also, and I, I don't want to complain about it until we've talked about the movie, but also it, this was such a small story stretched into, you know, feature length. Yeah. You know what I mean by that? Yeah, no, I, I definitely got that feeling. I'm like, wow, this could have been an episode of, you know, Tales from the Crypt. I mean, not really Tales from the Crypt because it's not as modern as that. But, you know, just like in, a, in an anthology TV series or movie or something like that. It could have been one of the stories and definitely had a lot of padding. And some of it was quite strange, I'd have to say. Um, yeah, well, let's have our our, uh, <laughs> our listeners go on this journey with us. <laughs> yeah. No uh no pun intended, and tell them a little bit about the the skull. But yeah, this starred Peter Cushing, and I feel like that has to have been an influence in why you wanted us to watch it. Yeah, and Christopher Lee. Right, and 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 Christopher Lee and, and Peter Cushing were often paired in the early Hammer films. The very first one, I believe, was in 1958. They did Frankenstein. I, I'm, tr- I'm trying to remember if they called it Evil of Frankenstein here in America, but then they the, that was so successful that they paired them up again uh, in their Dracula adaptation. But then after that, <laughs> they didn't have enough money to pay both of them for most of these Hammer films, and they would they would have. Uh, Cushing take over the the Frankenstein series and 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 appear as the Baron, or you know as the Doctor. Right. And they had Christopher Lee sort of run the the Dracula series. Although they, I think there was one where uh, there was a female vampire, and they did bring Cushing in to be Van Helsing, but Lee was nowhere to be found. Oh, okay. So maybe I just had seen that one iteration and thought that he was always Van Helsing. And then yeah, later. They would have other people play Van Helsing and stuff, and I. It, it may also be that there there just wasn't enough Cushing and Lee to go around. <laughs> they were making these movies at the same time, but what was strange on this one was you know it, it starred Peter Cushing, 
And then it said, and special guest star, Christopher Lee. Yeah, I thought that was strange. And that's something that we would always see on television, special guest star, you know, and, and it meant that they got paid more on television. Eventually, you'll on your uh, Star Trek podcast, you'll get to season two of Next Generation. And that was the season where uh, Dr. Pulaski was on. Right. Crusher was gone. And they had uh, Diana Muldar was her name. And she was always and special guest star Diana Muldar as Dr. Pulaski. And the reason that she did that was they got paid more as a special guest oh, star wow. than the regular cast did. And so she got a bigger check than the regulars by not joining as a regular. I, I don't know why I'm telling you that, but I'm just my, my thought is that it must have been some contractual thing to cast Christopher Lee in this part, which is much smaller than the Peter Cushing part. Yeah, this this movie kind of rides on Peter Cushing's shoulders, pretty much. There's a few other people in there, but uh, the one cast that, cast member that I was surprised by was uh was it michael gow or michael guff i think it was pronounced go go michael go okay yeah he was the auctioneer in like the second scene of the movie and i just kept waiting for him to show up again because they credited him early early on yeah like like he was a big deal and <laughs> he was in a bunch of the hammer films too oh, was he but you and i know him as the very first Alfred in the the movies, although, well, maybe not. In the 66, Batman had an Alfred as well. Sorry, let me rephrase. You and I knew him as Alfred the Butler in the Michael Keaton era Batman films. Yeah. So he was in all four of those, the Clooney one and Val Kilmer one. And, you know, that was toward the, the end of his life. But, yeah, he was the auctioneer at the very beginning well, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Why don't we tell them the story of the movie we just saw? The Skull. <laughs> so it starts out in a graveyard, which was a pretty good start for a scary movie. And uh, there's a couple of guys digging up a grave and a more well-to-do gentleman kind of waiting for them to finish. And uh, once they get to the casket and they're able to open it, um, he kind of shoes them away and opens up the casket and sees the, the body there. And then he gets a smile on his face and grabs a shovel. And we see him spearing down at the, the head then basically we, we find out he, he goes into his house and he, he has the skull in his hand or in a bag. And I guess we don't know that right away, but <laughs> he goes into the bathroom and there's a woman in the bathtub and he doesn't expect her to be there. And you'd expect him to be happy about that, but uh, he's kind of disgruntled and says, you're not supposed to be here and uh, <laughs> kicks her out of the bathtub, locks the door. And he starts pouring chemicals into this big basin. You, know, you see the steam coming up. So, you know, it's like acid or something like that. And then he pulls this, this skull out of the bag and puts it into the uh, basin. He's cleaning off this skull that he, he cut off of the corpse in the graveyard. And then we go to the girl friend. 
And she sees this steam coming out of the bathtub and she gets worried and knocks on the door and wants to go in. Eventually she does get in and she just screams. And we don't see at this point what she sees, but um, assume that something bad has happened to this gentleman. You're you're very kind calling him a gentleman. (laughs) Yeah, he was kind of a cat, I guess. But Oh, that's when the title sequence comes up and all the credits and everything. And then, then we go to this auction where Alfred is auctioning off uh, different pieces. And Cushing is there as Christopher Maitland. And then we also see Christopher Lee as uh, Matthew Phillips. And there's this uh, group of statues. They're all different types of demon statues. And they start to bid on these, and it keeps going up and up. And Christopher Lee then puts a bid up for the a huge amount of money. And Peter Cushing's kind of confused by that, but he relents and says, I'm not going to pay more for that. And so Christopher Lee gets the statues, and he goes up and he talks to him, and he says, now, why, why did you do that? Matthew, those figures aren't worth anything near what you paid. Well, even I was overbidding. What did you want them for? Well, I thought they'd go well with my collection, at the right price. Why did you want them so badly? I don't know. I really don't know. Which is kind of a strange, ominous thing to say. Yeah, I, I'm not sure the filmmakers knew why either, <laughs> so... Uh, that's. Uh, but it filled some time, so that was good. It, it certainly did, and... I couldn't tell when the the movie was set at this point. I just i I couldn't read their their clothing. None of it looked modern to me. Uh, it's not until Peter Cushing goes home and we see a car <laughs> and a telephone that I I thought, oh, okay, so this takes place in the sixties. Strange, but you know, we never see a television or anything like that. I just and and we never hear modern music. I, I just. I couldn't tell when it yeah. took place. <laughs> but yeah, it turns out that uh, Peter Cushing's character, what did you say his name was? Christopher Maitland. Maitland. That he is uh, like a, a, a collector or a student of the occult of some sort. Uh, he, he's he got a big library filled with all sorts of interesting things. Uh, there's like a hand of glory in there and creepy books and statues and, and a, 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 a dagger that, that of some kind of renown. And we find this out because he's got a, a seller, like a, a, a dude that obtains items and then he, he, he sells them. We get the impression this guy acquires items, maybe not on the up and up. Right. Right. And, and he comes in and he, he talks about the things that are in uh, Maitland's office. And in fact, I think he's selling him a, a book that's the history of the Marquis de Sade. It was rumored that he practiced sorcery, making sacrifices of blood to his master, the devil. Now, these were only rumors. It was the facts. His offenses against society which sent the Marquis to prison over and over again. He ended his days confined as a lunatic 
with an eternal hatred of all mankind. And he claims that it, it's uh, printed on on human skin. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, but it, a lot of it is there just so that we can have information shared with us as to what's going on, what what kind of things he has in his office, who the Marquis de Sade was, and then the, the seller. Uh, do you remember what the seller's name was? Uh, his last name was Marco. Okay, we'll just call him Marco. He... He leaves, but he says, "I oh, I have something even better. Do you mind if I come by tomorrow and bring that to you?" And and Christopher Lee, sorry, and Peter Cushing is is happy about that. He's excited, and then you know he reads the book about the Marquis de Sade. Yeah, just I I didn't really know where the 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 movie was going, except for the story is based on a story by Robert Block called "The Skull of the Marquis de Sade." <laughs> Right. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, okay, I think I know where this is going. <laughs> Have you read a lot of Robert Block? I know he was kind of a contemporary, right, of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft and that kind of – or would he be more of a next generation after? Yeah, I would think that he's he's much more uh, modern than that. You know, he did he died in the 90s. Yeah, Whereas, okay. you know, Love, Lovecraft died – in the thirties, but yeah, he's, he's most famous obviously for psycho for yep. writing the book that was based on psycho or, you know what I mean? The book that psycho was based on, uh, but he was a short story writer too. And I've, I've read a bunch of his short stories and I really, really like them. And t- today I went to a used bookstore specifically looking for a Robert block collection that would have this story in it so that you and I could talk about it. Oh yeah. And, and, and I only found one, and it was a collection from the 80s. Uh, it was too late to have the Marquis de Sade skull story in it. But I did buy the book, and I just figured it would be enjoyable to read them. Because the short stories I've heard by him, or read by him, I really, really enjoyed. I guess to be continued, maybe uh, I'll let you know when I read this this collection. Yeah, because I, I, I know of him, but I've never read any of his stories or books, so... So, um, yeah, and, you know, the, the Marquis de Sade is a real person that existed, a historical figure. Uh, yeah, that's where we get the term sadism is from, <laughs> from <Right>. this guy. <laughs> and, the, yeah, he talks about him being imprisoned and in insane asylums till the end of his life and things like that. And, and uh, he does come back the next night to visit Mr. Maitland. He shows him the skull. And tries to sell it to him, and they kind of bargain for a price. And uh, I think they finally decide on 500 pounds. But he doesn't, before he leaves, he says, well, think about, you know, I'll, I'll sell it to you for 500 pounds. So so think it over. At first, he was asking for 1,000 pounds. And I wondered about that. I was just like, well, how would you ever know that this was really the Marquis de Sade's skull? You know what I mean? It's like how where is their proof and and Cushing does sort of ask something like that and and maybe that's why he's unwilling to spend the thousand pounds, but it just you know it is a skull, and skulls are fairly generic, I mean maybe the teeth you could identify somebody with, but that that's a modern thing, 
The Marquis de Sade died in the 1800s, in 1814. And so, yeah, I just, I did wonder how, how you could ever prove that it was what it was. And I guess the answer is that the skull proves it to you through supernatural means. <laughs> yeah, we, we do get a flashback uh, when uh, Marco is telling Maitland about the skull and the, the history behind it. And we kind of go back to that first thing where the guy had, you know, first gotten the skull out of the grave and he was a phrenologist. And that was kind of a pseudoscience back in the day where people believe they could learn more about a person's brain and, and the, their personality by the size of their skull and measuring and things like that. And so he, this phrenologist, he was the guy that was killed in the bathroom. And so we have this flashback and we see that he was, he must have killed himself somehow. And he was floating in the bathtub and had drowned himself or whatever. And that's what the lady was screaming at. And then later on, a friend of his comes by to investigate maybe why he died or take care of his things. And he finds the skull and kind of throws it onto a couch and he's going through more things and he turns around and the skull is now sitting on the the mantle mm. of the fireplace and <laughs> he stares into the skull and he like you know almost like he's entranced by it and then he cha he grabs a dagger that's laying down laying around and finds the girl and and kills the girl so He's being compelled by the skull to kill. So, so we, we see that this skull does have these supernatural powers. I don't know if it floats at that point, but at least we know that it can control men's minds. Yeah, there's a scene early on where Marco's landlord finds the skull it shows up in like a, a closet a broom closet or something like that yes and marco doesn't know how it got out of his closet he had locked the door he has the only key kind of thing that, that was probably a, a warning sign that that something is up with this skull but uh they're, they're messing with things that they shouldn't be messing with and it's never clear whether these people had dark sides to them already or uh, you know, if the skull was corrupting them, it certainly feels like it is a corrupting influence, that it has some kind of magical power over the souls of men. And it would have been really easy for Christopher Lee to warn Peter Cushing in about this and say something like that, because uh, we see them again later on. They're, they they are friends and they they play billiards together and... Christopher Lee is also like a big collector of the occult or an expert in the occult. And he doesn't seem to have like a, a family to be married or anything like that. But, but Peter Cushing does. He's got a wife and you can tell that she's not thrilled with his, his study that's filled with all this creepy stuff. Uh, and he, he spends all of his time in there instead of with her. Well, and he does tell Cushing or, or Maitland, I guess, that... Marco had stole the skull from his study, that he had it locked away in a glass case, that Marco had stole it from him. Marco's expecting me later this evening. Why didn't you come with me? 
You could identify your property and get it back. I should do nothing of the sort. I'm glad that the skull has been stolen. And I advise you to leave it alone. Why? Because it's dangerous. Well, you've never taken any notice of superstition before. Exactly. And that is why when I tell you that I sincerely believe the skull to be dangerous, you'd better take my word for it. Oh, okay. I must have missed that part. That's actually pretty useful, story-wise. Yeah, so they filled in some of those gaps, but... The other thing that I thought was funny, and you know, I don't. I've always heard of snuff, but the the Marco guy, he was always dipping into his pocket and sniffing, getting snuff. Was that like cocaine, that kind of stuff, or do you have any idea? I honestly thought that it was like chewing tobacco, only you put it in your nose instead of your oh, okay. your lip. <laughs> but if if somebody's listening and they know exactly what it was, I, I, yeah, I'm I am curious. <laughs> I mean, I'd heard about it, but I'd never, you know, I mean, he quite often he's he's shown sniffing the snuff stuff. So <laughs> anyway, a little aside there. And I guess it starts to get really strange at this point because Cushing doesn't have the skull, but he he's all, he ta- all night. He reads again through the book of uh, the Marquis de Sade. We don't know if he falls asleep or whatever, but. In the morning, he's visited by some policemen or detectives or whatever, and they arrest him, and they don't tell him why or anything, and they put him in a car, and they take him, you know, like he's going to go to the police station. But they go to a strange location and go to this room, and there's a judge there, and, you know, the judge, I don't think he even says a word, (laughs) but he waves his hand and, you know, tells him what to do, and... And they give him, they get this gun out and put a bullet in it and spin the thing. And they, they force him to play Russian roulette uh, three different times, three different uh, pulls of the trigger. Um, which is really, I mean, it's, it's this intensely red room that they're in. And it's just really strange. And then they put him in this other room and then this gas starts coming out of the vents and he's trying to get out, and he's coughing or whatever. And then the walls start closing in like it's a death trap. And then, for sure, we see the skull floating <laughs> in front of him. And he closes his eyes, and then all of a sudden he wakes up, and he's in some some building, some stairway. It turns out to be where Marco was staying and he knows that because he finds some letters or something addressed to Marco. And then he just goes home and finds his wife. She was out, but coming home soon or whatever. And she was worried about him. And he, I don't know, to me, that, that part was the strangest. It really, they never explained it. it. They never came back to it. It was just a random thing that happened in the movie. <laughs> but it's it's a, a dream sequence essentially like a 15 minute segment of the film yeah but he doesn't confront marco he just looks at the door that's marco's and then he leaves yeah that's so weird yeah he look he's like because he lives in like a lodging house or something and so yeah he's down at the front desk or whatever and he sees letters addressed to to marco but nobody's around and then he just leaves and goes home so 
But then later, and then he, he's not home for very long, I don't think. And then he, he gets his money out of his safe and he goes back to Marcos. That's right. Okay. I guess to get the skull. I don't know why you would. After to, pay, to buy the skull, right, yeah. Yeah. Do you remember what happens at that point? So the girl has already died? Uh, which girl? I, didn't Marco have some, some girl that was... Uh, well, who... Whose body is behind the door in Marco's apartment? Oh, that's Marco. Okay. <laughs> but it, it seems like he goes into the room and there's somebody dead on the floor. And, and then he closes the door and Marco's dead body falls from behind the door. Am I... Yeah, I was trying to figure that out. I think I don't know if it was like a mummy or something like that. Because it was all wrapped <sighs> up in something. That's right. It was very strange. That's right. <laughs> So what he does is he sees the skull in the closet. So Marco is dead, right? And how is Marco dead? We don't know, I don't think. Oh, it's not the doctors tell us later how how but but Peter Cushing's character Maitland, is that his name? Yeah. He he sees the skull in the closet and so he grabs the skull and he goes out to the hall and he puts it in like the supply closet and hides it. And then he goes in and he calls the police. Yes. The police come and he tells them, you know, that he came in and uh, and and this man it was dead. And the constable says it looks like he was attacked by some kind of animal. It, it has torn out his throat or his jugular. Something has bitten him, right? Right, yes. But they don't suspect uh, Maitland at all. Uh, I, as as far as I know, and he wasn't actually arrested. That was a dream. Yeah. So then he he go he he goes home, right? <laughs> well, he goes home, but then he comes back because he the skull is still in the the hallway linen closet or whatever, and so he he goes back to get it, but the landlord comes upstairs and finds him, and he starts asking him questions and. Threatening him, essentially. What's that you do? You stealing something? No, this belongs to me. Funny. I've seen that before. In Israel. I paid Mr. Marco for it. Now, how do I know you're telling the truth? Hmm? Must be worth something, then. Excuse me. Now. What about a little phone call to the police? He ends up falling down the stairs through some stained glass. Pretty much the the skull uh, took care of the landlord. So, I don't know. At this point, I was like, oh, this is similar to what they did sometimes on the, on like the omen and things like that. But it's, uh, it's not as well done for sure. Yeah, I guess the skull is helping Peter Cushing get what he wants or get away with it or, or whatever. Yeah, the, the the landlord is killed, and I think he just makes a break for it with the skull and goes home. Yes. Now, does he put it in a glass case or does he put it on a shelf or... he what is it? He puts it in a glass case, he lights some candles, and then he goes to his bedroom. <laughs> but then he can't... Stay in the bedroom, so he goes back and stares at the skull. He's probably enthralled or whatever. Yeah, and I, I, I feel like at this, you need to let the audience know 
that at this point there's no more dialogue. <laughs> it's just it's just reacting. It's just Peter Cushing and a skull in a in a house at night. <laughs> and they convey what is going on, but really, really slowly. Yeah, they're 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 very proud of the wires that hold the skull uh, through the air as it floats. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a fairly good effect, but boy, they they do it a lot. They do it a lot. And and to make a, an extraordinarily long story short, the skull wants Maitland to murder his wife, who is sleeping, and they they have adjoining bedrooms, but they don't, you know, they don't sleep in the same room. Maitland doesn't want to do it. He's he's fighting the urge to kill, I suppose. Uh, and at one point, he locks the the skull in that glass case, and I believe the the skull bursts out and breaks the glass. Does this sound right? Well, that's the second time. The first time, it telekinetically or whatever unlocks because the key is still in the keyhole. And so the first oh okay. the first time the skull comes the out, talented skull, it unlocks and comes down and. And sits on a table, and the book, the Dasad book, floats over, and they're all sitting together. And then he t- turns around and looks back, and now that there's a pentagram drawn underneath the skull. That's right. <laughs> and yeah, uh, they, that's kind of subtle. They don't they don't have like a a super loud crash of music or anything. Yeah, it just appears. Oh, and then the the other things are he breaks into. Christopher Lee's house and gets the demon statues that he had collected and Lee <laughs> Lee comes in and, and tries to stop him and he hits him over the head with this one of the statues and then he takes the statues back to be with the skull and the, the book <laughs> and then yeah I think it's compelling Cushing to kill his wife like you said and he takes this dagger and Earlier, Marco was talking about this dagger, and it was known as the wife killer. Ah. And I thought that was kind of neat, that he was using that same knife to go kill his wife. But just as... And you could tell he's he doesn't want to do it, but he's being compelled. And just as he's about to kill her, she's wearing a crucifix around her neck. And so that breaks the spell or whatever, and he, he doesn't kill his wife, and he goes back to the study and then he locks the skull back up in the case and he wraps he has this little rosary or whatever with a crucifix on it and he wraps that around the lock so that uh, the skull can't get out but like then like you said the skull at that point once it realizes it can't escape it just breaks through the glass <laughs> yeah it's it's a lot of just the skull telling him to do this thing and he doesn't want to do it and then the skull is just like floating around and chasing him around and ultimately doesn't Cushing stick the skull in the eye socket with the the blade so do you remember this happening and that like breaks the spell yes yeah he stabs the skull through the eye with the dagger and then leaves and I think he at that point he locks himself in his room or something like that but then the, the dagger appears, disappears from where the skull is and appears on his pillow. Is that right? 
And then the skull flies. All of a sudden, the skull is flying toward him in the bedroom. And yes, this was the the funnest part. When a couple of times toward the end of the movie, they do the skull's point of view. Yeah, that's true. And they put the camera behind the skull, and you see the eye sockets. You see what it sees. And it's it, it's amusing the first time they do it, and then they do it like four or five times, <laughs> and and it's just yeah they've they've got a car, a cutout of the skull in front of the camera, and yeah you you see its point of view as it's floating toward Peter Cushing, uh, toward his throat, right? Yeah, yeah, and he's screaming or whatever, and and then it, it's morning, and his wife wakes up, and she's fine and everything. But then his bedroom is locked or whatever, and so eventually she gets into the bedroom, but she finds that he's he's dead. But then when the policemen are there again, they talk about his neck being torn out. And my wife pointed this out because she was watching it with me, but she said, does the skull have blood on its mouth? It did. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and I said, well, I, I, maybe it kind of looks like it does, but... It was just sitting there on a table or whatever when the police come in. And it's the same inspector or whatever that we saw earlier when Marco was killed. And they still can't figure out what did it. I think one of the last statements of the movie was, do you think it's some kind of witchcraft or something? And the inspector says, oh, not in this day and age. And then that's the end of the movie, essentially. Wow, you remembered more of it than I did. Well done. (laughs) Yeah, at one point during the movie, I did think, who suggested that we watch this? Who can I curse (laughs) when we do our episode? It is I. I thought it was going to be... I mean, I knew it was because the preview or the trailer for it showed some of the weird things with the skull flying around and the point of view of through the eyes of the skull. And I just thought it was kind of looked kind of to be fun and schlocky and... It had Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee in it. So I thought, oh, this would be great. This will be fun. Good schlock. (laughs) And yeah, it it was schlock. But I felt like just the it was way, way too long for how little story there was in it. And they they could have thrown in other characters and had new victims of the skull. And there was like a girl that lived at the house. I'm assuming she was like a servant girl or something. With Peter Cushing, and she's introduced at the very beginning. Then we never really see her again. She could have been a victim, or she could have been terrified by the skull, uh, or quit over the skull, or something like that. But no, they just it it had a very very small cast. And then yeah, there's that scene where he's arrested, and nobody talks to him, and uh, it's all a dream. But it it just it goes on forever. And yeah, the Russian roulette scene is it's well done. Yeah. Cause that's really scary. The idea of that, they put in a bullet, they spin the chamber and make him hold it to his own temple and pull the trigger. Then they spin the chamber again and make him pull the trigger. But there's no dialogue. There's no, you know, what have I done? What am I being charged with or any of that stuff? It's just silent. <laughs> and I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm sure it was a, a choice, an artistic choice. I just didn't like it. I Cushing has such a great voice and he is a fine actor. And it just, it seemed like maybe they were just 
recording with no sound on the set and the director was just telling him to do other things like they sometimes do where it's like okay and now uh now you run to one of these vents and try and cover up the toxic gas with your fingers <laughs> yeah <laughs> it was 83 minutes long but it felt like a hundred yeah it, it could have easily been you know, a half hour long. It, it could have. And I mean, it would have been really tight in a half hour. We, we, or, you know, maybe 40 minutes. Make it a make it a an hour long TV show, you know. with Yeah, it's an episode of Night Gallery instead of uh, Twilight Zone. Or, or it was a fourth season episode of the Twilight Zone when they had the super long episodes. But uh, like the Christopher Lee thing, you know, he's introduced and I sort of hoped that he would show up and save his friend. Uh, or or do something because he seemed to have wisdom and experience that that uh, Cushing didn't have, but no, he's just gone from the movie. Yeah, well, and even the end, you know, Peter Cushing is found dead, but the skull is still there in the house. You know, is it going to go after the wife next, or you know what? <laughs> yeah, they they could have had one of the cops be like super drawn to it. And, you know, you can tell that he's going to snag it for himself or, you know, that some of the evidence is going to disappear or whatever. But they they didn't. It just, uh, it was not a good flick. Yeah, I guess we should we should be thankful there wasn't a The Skull 2 or something <laughs> like that. Uh, so, yes, I, I do apologize for... No, no, it's it's not you. What, what was it you said before, though, before we started recording... Uh, when I accused you of, of picking a bad movie. Oh, that that I was getting you back for, for watching the uh, King Solomon's Mind? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and yeah, touche. <laughs> so yeah, once again, we have watched a movie so that you don't have to. So Unless you really want to. <laughs> uh, so Rish, how did, how did you end up watching The Skull? Well, it seems like months ago when you first suggested we do this, it was available on YouTube. You could just watch the whole darn thing. But here we are months later and it wasn't there anymore. And so I looked for it on Netflix. I looked for it on, was it Hulu? And I found it on On Demand, but you had to pay for it. And then my friend said, oh, hey, they have a copy at the library. And so he grabbed it and we watched it at his house. And at some point, his elderly father came over <laughs> and sat down on the couch uh, because he was waiting. He was trying, he was going to take the granddaughter to get her car worked on. And, and or she, he had already done that. And they were waiting to, for the call that says the car is done. And at one point, I looked over and this old man, you know, 75-year-old man, maybe older than that, had just this look of revulsion on his face like we were watching filth. You know what I'm talking about? Hey, <laughs> he yeah. was just like, he's just like, oh. And I I felt really embarrassed because I guess, you know, he doesn't get this kind of thing at home. And finally the phone rang and the, the the car was done, and so he was going to take the granddaughter to go pick up her car, and he left before the movie was done. But he'd seen, like, all the psychedelic stuff and the 
Russian roulette and the smoke and the floating <laughs> skull and, and the, that stuff. And I said to Jeff, I said, oh my gosh, the look on his face. He was just not enjoying this movie. And, he, and, and Jeff said, what are you talking about? He loved it. He, my mom never lets him watch anything like this. It's all like Hallmark <laughs> Hall of Fame stuff in, in my mom's house. This, he, oh, he loved getting a chance to see a movie with blood in it. And I just, I don't know if he was telling the truth or not. It was, it did not match the look on this guy's face, what Jeff said, but okay, we can just take his, his word for it. How did you watch The Skull? Well, I, the re, the way I found this movie to begin with is when CBS All Access changed to Paramount Plus and they put a bunch of movies on there to kind of promote it. I was going through the entire movie selection that they had when they first came out with Paramount Plus, and that's how I found The Skull. I'm like, The Skull, that's a weird... And then I looked and saw it had Peter Cushing, and I watched the preview and kind of laughed, and I said, oh, we're, I'm going to have to get Rich to watch that for the podcast. And up until two weeks ago, it was still on Paramount Plus. And then, you know, you had said, you know, I'm, I'm, I can watch it this week. And so whenever night we had said we were going to watch it, I started or I, I went to go find it and it wasn't on Paramount Plus anymore. And I searched and I searched and the, I found it on uh, Amazon, but I had to rent it for three bucks or whatever, which isn't a big deal. But the whole point of uh, watching the movie was because it was on Paramount Plus for free. And I had told you that it was on Paramount Plus if you wanted to watch it with your cousin or whatever. But, uh, yeah, I'm glad you found it somewhere else because you wouldn't have found it on Paramount Plus. Mm. So when you find movies that you want to watch on these streaming services, you need to uh, watch them while you can, I guess. Because they'll disappear. (laughs) That's a good point. So I guess, yeah, where, where does that put us? What do you want to review next time? I don't know. I mean, there are some really good Cushing and and Christopher Lee movies out there. But I feel like, you know, this was sort of our uh, Halloween season movie. Uh, there, there was that one House of Long Shadows. Is that what it was called that I had wanted us to watch? Yeah, you brought that up last time. Yeah. That had uh, a lot of these guys in it. I, I believe it had both Lee and Cushing and old man Carradine in it, and Vincent Price in it. But I, I don't know if it's available on streaming or anything like that. And if you want to give horror films a rest for a little while, I get that too. But but let's keep that on the short list of stuff that we should watch. Unfortunately, it was distributed by Canon Films, so that's yes. a strike against it. <laughs> it may be really, really bad. But when I was a little boy, I thought it was really cool. Well, and, you know, having these guys back in there and with Vincent Price, I think that would be a lot of fun value for me. So, Yeah, did you ever see, uh, was it The Raven? Was one of those where they had a bunch of horror actors. They had, uh, was it a Corman one? Where it had Peter Lorre and Christopher Lee and, not Christopher Lee, Peter Lorre and Boris Karloff and Vincent Price were all in it together. Am I remembering the right movie? Yeah, I believe that. I I haven't sat down and watched the whole movie, but I have seen different scenes from that movie with Laurie and Price. And, and uh, yeah, it looks really good. And I feel like that should be on 
our list too because it's it's supposed to be an adaptation of of Poe although you know it's it's not really it's just a, a raven does feature in the movie <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, well yeah those corman poe movies are interesting because they tend to weave they have a the movie itself has its own plot but it it weaves like multiple poe stories into the same movie which is Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But I think the the tomb of Lygia was the one that I thought was the the weirdest one that, where they did that. Yeah, the 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 very first couple that that Corman did, which would have been Fall of the House of Usher and Pit and the Pendulum, right? Was our third one that that where they were all completely straight. That there weren't any comedic elements, and they were trying to make art. Yeah, uh, I felt like those were really solid movies, and then they made like Tales of Terror, which was like let's do three Poe stories, and we'll we'll have fun with this, and one of them will be funny, and then yeah, they did the Raven, which just entirely a comedy, and 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 eventually they tried to go back to a, a completely straight one. They spent a ton of money on um, Mask of the Red Death. Oh, and I yeah. I, I I don't know how many of these you've seen. I've seen quite a few of them, but I, you know, they they tended to be pretty quality films, and you you see these these great actors, especially Price, in them. But I remember Jack Nicholson, a very young Jack, being in two or three of them. Yeah, I know. Uh, I've watched one of those movies with Jack Nicholson in it. I can't remember which one that one was. Well, I know he was in The Raven. Oh, he was in The Raven. Okay, so that that's probably the one I've seen then. But there were others. But it, you know, it's been a while since I've seen them. So, I think my favorite Poe adaptation by Corman was the Premature Burial. Oh, okay. I forgot. I didn't mention that one at all. And maybe I should. How long ago did you see it? I maybe I should rent that one. I would like to see it. Uh, I've got a list here. They did eight of them: House of Usher which was 1960, Pit and the Pendulum the next year, Premature Burial the next year, Tales of Terror that same year, The Raven the next year, The Haunted Palace, which is actually based on a Lovecraft book, uh, the, the Case of Charles Dexter Ward, then Mask of the Red Death in 1964, and then Tomb of Lygia uh, was the last one that they did. Oh, really? Huh. The, the Haunted Palace is a Poe title of a poem that he wrote but they just slapped that title on a lovecraft story <laughs> yeah. probably because at this point the studio was known for it they they were uh <laughs> they yeah, they do these poe films and uh, they were tremendously successful for aip which was uh, american international pictures which was known as the drive-in studio they made movies for teenagers to watch at drive-ins and and Corman could just pump these out. You know, he was always a super, super fast filmmaker, even before he became, you know, what he became in the 70s. Yeah, the the uh, I know we're talking about all these movies now, but uh, The Premature Barrel was interesting because he wanted, of course, Vincent Price for it. But I think Corman had his own production for that one or something like that. And the other studio didn't give him the rights to use their actor, Vincent Price. And so... Oh, okay. So American International Pictures, AIP, okay. owned Vincent Price. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, they had him under contract back in the old studio system. Uh, and so who did he cast instead? Ray Milland. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I know Ray Milland. But he he's no Vincent Price. Milland did some horror stuff. Like, I remember he, he did X, the man with the X-ray eyes. Did you ever see that? Oh, no, I haven't seen that. But he's mostly known for, like, his dramatic work. Yeah, that that movie's pretty solid. Oh, but here's one that you've probably seen him in. He was the husband in Dial M for Murder, which Hitchcock did yes. in in 3D. Do you remember that? And Grace Kelly is the wife. Yeah, yeah. That's a good movie, too. <laughs> Maybe we'll have to double those up, do the premature burial and uh, Dial M for Murder or something. Yeah, I'd, I'd watch Dial M for Murder again. I saw it fairly recently. And it seems like we talked about it in one of our episodes of this, that Hitchcock did that one in 3D, and then he did a couple others in 3D. One of the ones we talked about. Do you remember what it was that, that we reviewed? I don't remember which other one was in 3D. Lucky thing you're editing this episode, because <laughs> yeah. there's lots and lots of me saying, gosh, I can't remember that name. What was it? Yeah, at some point, I guess we'll go back to Hitchcock because uh, it's been a little while since we watched. Was it uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much, the last one that we did? Right, yeah. We we doubled up on those. Or was it Marnie? We did do Marnie, yes. We did. <laughs> the, there were a bunch of Hitchcock films that we talked about. Uh, remember, I, I got one from the library that was like this big collection of Hitchcock and we always meant to go back and watch another one. I think it was Jamaica Inn I wanted to see or something like that. Yeah, and, something like that. And we said, yeah, next year we'll do that. <laughs> so it's getting pretty close to next year. I I did get a request from a Patreon member um, for us to watch The Third Man. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. The Third Man. Not The Thin Man. The Third Man. The Third Man. Yeah. Is that a Hitchcock flick? No, it's a it's a noir movie from 38, I think. Or 49 is when that came out. It's got Joseph Cotton. Oh, okay. Cotton. I, I, I have seen The Third Man. It has Orson Welles in it. Yeah. Yeah, um, and Joseph at, Cotton. And he plays Harry Lyme, and it's like he's he's really, really big and gross. And and he uh, – yeah, oh, I, I would watch that again I, I if, if you want to put that on the list. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, let's put uh, – you have a spreadsheet, right? Let's put uh, Third Man on there, and, and we'll watch it at some point. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. So anyway, <laughs> we've talked about many things, but, uh, but we also talked about the skull. Hope you enjoyed our review of it. And yeah, if you do have other suggestions or comments on this movie or whatever that you'd like to contact us, you can do so at Journey Into Podcast at gmail.com or call the voicemail line at 77J into 107. If you'd like to support us on Patreon, uh, Rish has a, a Patreon that you can get to by going to patreon.com slash Rish Outfield. And then if you want to support the Journey Into podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash Journey Into. And uh, we'd love to have your support and, uh, Check out what we have to offer. But uh, until next time, the balcony is closed. <laughs> <laughs> Who is it that used to say the balcony is closed? That was uh, Siskel and Ebert. Really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> At the movies.
But uh, yeah, unless you have any more tidbits of information you want to share about the skull. No, uh, just Peter Cushing deserves better. (laughs) And so do you, Marshall. And so does Count Dooku. (laughs) Uh, uh, All right. (laughs) All right, everybody. Good night. Not in this day and age. (laughs) Good night. You see, the outfield excursions are procured and produced under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. Aside from some of its occult references, it specifies that you cannot sell or change the content of this podcast, and you must make sacrifices of blood to your master, the devil. Or so the rumours say. But it is a fact that you are encouraged to share this podcast with as many people as you would like. But you do need to tell people where it came from. Otherwise, you might end your days confined as a lunatic with an eternal hatred of all mankind. Robert Bloch's original short story was about six pages long. Subotsky's script for The Skull apparently only ran to 53 pages. As a general rule of thumb, a page is about a minute of screen time, so Freddie Francis had to get very creative to stretch that slim script into a feature-length product. And I think this is the crux of why The Skull is simultaneously frustrating and fascinating. A bit of a letdown and a hidden gem. You see, there are large stretches of film that are completely dialogue-free or extremely light on dialogue. Francis used the sumptuous set decoration by Scott Slimman for all it was worth, shooting the hell out of Maitland's study. The study is filled with occult knickknacks. There's one section of film where Cushing is simply sitting of an evening in his study, reading his tome on the Marquis de Sade, and Francis's camera glides through the... Barber-esque, greenly lit study, and we spend minutes simply watching Cushing reading. This is pure acting. Cushing spends a great deal of the film watching, listening, reacting, thinking. If you have any love for this man as a performer, you owe it to yourself to watch The Skull and just revel in his work. I grow tired of asking this, so it'll be the last time. Where is the rebel base? And tell them a little bit about the the skull. Gosh, I do have to find a sound effect yeah. for that. <laughs> I could probably um, use the music from the movie. Oh, is there like some kind of really loud, jarring noise? Well, I don't know. I'd have to search through it, but...